Section 1 of Three Science Fiction Novellas by Lee Brackett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Lake Placid, Florida. Three Science Fiction Novellas by Lee Brackett. Enchantress of Venus, Part 1. The ship moved slowly across the Red Sea, through the shrouding veils of mist, her sail barely filled with the languid thrust of the wind. Her hull, of a light thin metal, floated without sound, the surface of the strange ocean parting before her prow in silent rippling streamers of flame. Light deepened toward the ship, a river of indigo flowing out of the west. The man known as Stark stood alone by the after-rail and watched its coming. He was full of impatience and a gathering sense of danger, so it seemed to him that even the hot wind smelled of it. The steersman lay drowsily over his sweep. He was a big man, with skin and hair the color of milk. He did not speak, but Stark felt that now and again the man's eyes turned toward him, pale and calculating under half-closed lids, with a secret avarice. The captain and the two other members of the little coasting vessel's crew were forward at their evening meal. Once or twice Stark heard a burst of laughter, half-whispered and furtive. It was as though all four shared in some private joke, from which he was rigidly excluded. The heat was oppressive. Sweat gathered on Stark's dark face. His shirt stuck to his back. The air was heavy with moisture, tainted with the muddy fecundity of the land that brooded westward behind the eternal fog. There was something ominous about the sea itself. Even on its own world, the Red Sea is hardly more than a legend. It lies behind the mountains of white cloud, the great barrier wall that hides away half a planet. Few men have gone beyond that barrier, into the vast mystery of inner Venus. Fewer still have come back. Stark was one of that handful. Three times he had crossed the mountains, and once he had stayed for nearly a year. But he had never quite grown used to the Red Sea. It was not water. It was gaseous, dense enough to float the buoyant hulls of the metal ships, and it burned perpetually with its deep inner fires. The mists that clouded it were stained with the bloody glow. Beneath the surface Stark could see the drifts of flame where the lazy currents ran, and the little coiling bursts of sparks that came upward and spread and melted into other bursts, so that the face of the sea was like a cosmos of crimson stars. It was very beautiful, glowing against the blue, luminous darkness of the night. Beautiful and strange. There was a padding of bare feet, and the captain, Malthor, came up to Stark, his outlines dim and ghostly in the gloom. "'We will reach Shurun,' he said." before the second glasses run. Stark nodded. Good. The voyage had seemed endless, and the close confinement of the narrow deck had gotten badly on his nerves. You will like Shurun, said the captain jovially. Our wine, our food, our women, all superb. We don't have many visitors. We keep to ourselves, as you will see. But those who do come... He laughed and clapped Stark on the shoulder. Ah, yes, you will be happy in Sharoon. It seemed to Stark that he had caught an echo of laughter from the unseen crew, 
as though they listened and found a hidden jest in Malthor's words. Stark said, that's fine. Perhaps, said Malthor, you would like to lodge with me. I could make you a good price. He had made a good price for Stark's passage up the coast. An exorbitantly good one. Stark said, no. You don't have to be afraid, said the Venusian in a confidential tone. The strangers who come to Sharoon all have the same reason. It's a good place to hide. We're out of everybody's reach. He paused, but Stark did not rise to this bait. Presently he chuckled and went on. In fact, it's such a safe place that most of the strangers decide to stay on. Now, at my house, I could give you... Stark said again, flatly, No. The captain shrugged. Very well. Think it over anyway. He peered ahead into the red, coiling mists. Ah, see there? He pointed, and Stark made out the shadowy loom of cliffs. We're coming into the strait now. Malthor turned and took the steering sweep himself, the helmsman going forward to join the others. The ship began to pick up speed. Stark saw that she had come into the grip of a current that swept toward the cliffs, a river of fire ever more swiftly in the depths of the sea. The dark walls seemed to plunge toward them. At first, Stark could see no passage. Then, suddenly, a narrow crimson streak appeared, widened, and became a gut of boiling flame, rushing silently around broken rocks. Red fog rose like smoke. The ship quivered, sprang ahead, and tore like a mad thing into the heart of the inferno. In spite of himself, Stark's hands tightened on the rail. Tattered veils of mist swirled past them. The sea, the air, the ship itself seemed drenched in blood. There was no sound in all that wild sweep of current through the strait. Only the sullen fires burst and flowed. The reflected glare showed Stark that the straits of Shurun were defended. Squat fortresses brooded on the cliffs. There were ballistas and great windlasses for the drawing of nets across the narrow throat. The men of Shurun could enforce their law, that barred all foreign shipping from their gulf. They had reason for such a law, and such a defense. The legitimate trade of Shurun, such as it was, was in wine and the delicate laces woven from spider silk. Actually, however, the city lived and throve on piracy, the arts of wrecking, and a contraband trade in the distilled juice of the Vila Poppy. Looking at the rocks and the fortresses, Stark could understand how it was that Shurun had been able for more centuries than anyone could tell to victimize the shipping of the Red Sea and offer a refuge to the outlaw, the wolf's head, the breaker of taboo. With startling abruptness, they were through the gut and drifting on the still surface of this all but landlocked arm of the Red Sea. Because of the shrouding fog, Stark could see nothing of the land. But the smell of it was stronger. Warm damp soil and the heavy, faintly rotten perfume of vegetation half jungle, half swamp. Once, through a rift in the wreathing vapor, he thought he glimpsed the shadowy bulk of an island, but it was gone at once. After the terrifying rush of the strait, it seemed to Stark that the ship barely moved. His impatience and the subtle sense of danger deepened. He began to pace the deck, 
with the nervous, velted motion of a prowling cat. The moist, steamy air seemed all but unbreathable after the clean dryness of Mars, from whence he had come so recently. It was oppressively still. Suddenly he stopped, his head thrown back, listening. The sound was borne faintly on the slow wind. It came from everywhere and nowhere, a vague dim thing without source or direction. It almost seemed that the night itself had spoken, the hot blue night of Venus, crying out in the mist with a tongue of infinite woe. It faded and died away, only half heard, leaving behind it a sense of aching sadness, as though all the misery and longing of the world had found voice in that desolate wail. Stark shivered. For a time there was silence, and then he heard the sound again, now on a deeper note. Still faint and far away, it was sustained longer by the vagaries of the heavy air, and it became a chant, rising and falling. There were no words. It was not the sort of thing that would have need of words. Then it was gone again. Stark turned to Malthor. What was that? The man looked at him curiously. He seemed not to have heard. That wailing sound, said Stark impatiently. Oh, that, the Venetian shrugged. A trick of the wind. It sighs in the hollow rocks around the strait. He yawned, giving place again to the steersman, and came to stand beside Stark. The earthman ignored him. For some reason, that sound half heard through the mists had brought his uneasiness to a sharp pitch. Civilization had brushed over Stark with a light hand. Raised from infancy by half-human aboriginals, his perceptions were still those of a savage. His ear was good. Malthor lied. That cry of pain was not made by any wind. I have known several earthmen, said Malthor, changing the subject, but not too swiftly. None of them were like you. Intuition warned Stark to play along. I don't come from Earth, he said. I come from Mercury. Malthor puzzled over that. Venus is a cloudy world where no man has ever seen the sun, let alone a star. The captain had heard vaguely of these things. Earth and Mars he knew of, but Mercury was an unknown word. Stark explained, The planet nearest the sun. It's very hot there. The sun blazes like a huge fire. There are no clouds to shield it. Ah, that's why your skin is so dark. He held his own pale forearm close to Stark's and shook his head. I've never seen such skin, he said admiringly. Nor such great muscles. Looking up, he went on in a tone of complete friendliness. I wish you would stay with me. We'll find no better lodgings in Shurun. And I warn you, there are people in town who will take advantage of strangers, rob them, even slay them. Now, I'm known by all as a man of honor. You could sleep soundly under my roof. He paused, then added with a smile. Also, I have a daughter. An excellent cook, and very beautiful. The woeful chanting came again, dim and distant on the wind, an echo of warning against some unimagined fate. Stark said for the third time, No. He needed no intuition to tell him to walk wide of the captain. The man was a rogue, and not a very subtle one. 
A flint-hard, angry look came briefly into Malthor's eyes. You're a stubborn man. You'll find that Shurun is no place for stubbornness. He turned and went away. Stark remained where he was. The ship drifted on through a slow eternity of time. And all down that long, still gulf of the Red Sea, through the heat and the wreathing fog, the ghostly chanting haunted him, like the keening of lost souls in some forgotten hell. Presently the course of the ship was altered. Malthor came again to the afterdeck, giving a few quiet commands. Stark saw land ahead, a darker blur on the night, and then the shrouded outlines of a city. Torches blazed on the quays and in the streets, and the low buildings caught a ruddy glow from the burning sea itself. A squat and ugly town, Shurun, crouching witch-like on the rocky shore, her ragged skirts dipped in blood. The ship drifted toward the quays. Stark heard a whisper of movement behind him, the hushed and purposeful padding of naked feet. He turned with the astonishing swiftness of an animal that feels itself threatened, his hand dropping to his gun. A belaying pin, thrown by the steersman, struck the side of his head with stunning force. Reeling, half-blinded, he saw the distorted shapes of men closing in upon him. Malthor's voice sounded low and hard. A second belaying pin whizzed through the air and cracked against Stark's shoulder. Hands were laid upon him. Bodies, heavy and strong, bore his down. Malthor laughed. Stark's teeth glinted bare and white. Someone's cheek brushed past, and he sank them into the flesh. He began to growl, a sound that should never come from a human throat. It seemed to the startled Venusians that the man they had attacked had by some wizardry become a beast at the first touch of violence. The man with the torn cheek screamed. There was a voiceless scuffling on the deck, a terrible intensity of motion, and then the great dark body rose and shook itself free of the tangle and was gone over the rail, leaving Malthor with nothing but the silken rags of a shirt in his hands. The surface of the Red Sea closed without a ripple over Stark. There was a burst of crimson sparks, a momentary trail of flame going down like a drowned comet, and then nothing. End of Part 1